this new old house by Reddit user Bat Out of Hell 821. <sighs> Finally, we bought a house, my boyfriend and I. He's in charge of, you know, the new construction, like converting the kitchen into a master bedroom, for instance, while I'm on the wallpaper removal duty. Ugh. Now, the previous owner papered every wall and ceiling. Removing it is brutal, but oddly satisfying. Now, the best feeling is getting a long peel, you know, similar to your skin when you're peeling from a sunburn. I don't know about you, but I kind of make a game of peeling on the hunt for the longest piece before it rips. Now, here's a weird part. Under a corner section of paper in every room is a person's name and a date. Now, curiosity got the best of me one night, and when I googled one of the names and discovered the person was actually a missing person. The missing date matching the date under the wallpaper. Now, the next day, I made a list of all the names and dates. Sure enough, each name was for a missing person with dates to match. I, I freaked out and told my boyfriend, and that's when we notified the police, who sent out a crime scene team. I overheard one text say, Yep, it's human. He's talking and I'm not, and I'm just. <laughs> and then I'm talking. <laughs> no, oh, wait, wait, I have something for him. Boom. Shut down. Now you're just fucking me, aren't you? <laughs> I'm just wondering why all these people like kids. The Weird History and Eerie Tales Podcast. Concentrate on the news. It's what we do. Wow. <laughs> FYI, there's nothing wrong with my <laughs> Happy All Hallows Eve, my girls and gals. Well, why do we love horror so much? Why? Why do we love it? Well, some of us love our pulse to race, our heart to pound, dun, 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 dun. and then some of us love to lay awake with our thoughts racing. So, if you're into that, you're in luck, because the boys have eerie tales to tell that would leave you quaking. <laughs> Unless you're listening during the day, then great way on ruining something. But if you are listening at night, you're screwed. So sit back and enjoy the show. <laughs> Driving. I always found driving peaceful. There's something almost serene about just cruising along at a steady pace down a long strip of road. Coincidentally, that's exactly what I was doing on this cool September night. A little road trip I've been planning for a while sent me straight in the middle of rural Kansas. I don't usually frequent the open country like this, I'm more of a city person. If you saw my car, you wouldn't be surprised. 2015 Toyota Camry. She isn't exactly an off-roading machine, but she gets me where I need to go. Anyways, back to the very long stretch of highway. All I could see were rolling fields. I wasn't sure what kind of crop was planted in the fields, like I said, city boy. The sun was starting to set, bathing the landscape in an orange hue. 
It transformed the fields into a sea of flowing gold. Shimmering in the wind, it was almost like I could swim in it. I was starting to lose myself in this real-life painting when I noticed something. On the horizon, about as far down the road as my naked eye could see, I saw a silhouette of what looked like a person standing completely still. I instantly flipped off my cruise control and pressed on the brake, slowing down to a crawl. I stuck my head out of the window to try and get a better look. It was too dark to make out any defining features, but from the build it may have been a man. I was starting to get a bad feeling. I'm a pretty paranoid person, so I thought of this as some kind of setup. You know, someone stands in the middle of the road so a car will slow down and then his buddies jump out of the field and carjack him, or something along those lines. A little unsettled, I swung my head back inside, rolled up the windows and locked the doors. Unfortunately, there weren't any turnoffs, and I would have to drive back miles to actually find one. I really didn't feel like wasting a gallon of gas and my time to turn around, so I set off forward at a steady pace, keeping my eyes on the figure. After about five minutes of driving with the worst case scenarios playing in my head, I noticed something that sent a chill up my spine. Even after driving a mile, the figure didn't seem to get any closer. There he stood in the middle of the road as still as a scarecrow, right on the edge of my perceivable vision. I was starting to get frustrated. Was this figure moving away from me? But the figure showed no signs of movement, so how could he be running away? I gave it some gas and picked up the pace. The speedometer read 30 miles per hour. After five miles, the figure still wasn't getting any closer. My head was starting to spin. What the fuck is going on? I sped up to 40, 50, 60 miles an hour. And there he stood like a watchful sentinel, unwavering in the wind. 70, 80, 90. My Camry was starting to shake. The engine was gasping for air. I no longer confined myself to the right side of the road. I was streaking towards the figure going straight down the center of the road. I noticed the sky was starting to change color. Instead of the setting sun and plunging the rolling fields around me into darkness, the sky was starting to take on an amber color, like the entire world was on fire. Our eyes locked, and I have no idea how. He was too far away for me to see his eyes, but I knew they were there, gazing into mine. They felt sinister. It made my hair stand on end. He was smiling at me. No, no. He was grinning. Full on cheek splitting grin. I knew he was. I couldn't see his face, but I knew he was. I tried slamming on the brakes, but all I was greeted with was the brake pedal giving away with no resistance and slamming into the floor of my car. I couldn't stop, and I couldn't look away. I'm losing my mind. My hands felt glued to the steering wheel. I was struggling to breathe when suddenly the radio blared to life. An ear-splitting scream filled the air. It sounded like a man in agony, a combination of screaming and sobbing. I couldn't move my hands to turn off the radio and I couldn't take my eyes off the road. Tears started to run down my face and my ears began to ring from the shrieking. He was coming for me. I knew it before he even started moving. He took off down the road towards me, sprinting at inhuman speeds. His limbs spun and twisted as he ran, almost as if all his bones were broken. But he ran anyway. He seemed faster than any car and was on me in seconds. Only a couple feet away from the hood of my car was when I could make out his features. Pale green, leathery skin, 
horribly disfigured with scars as deep as ravines. As if his entire face was taken apart and put back together. The worst part was his grin. It was too wide for anyone to consider normal. And it was so wide that I could not only see his front teeth, but his molars too. He slammed into my car at full speed, flying into my windshield, sending cracks like a spider's web through the glass and flipping over my car. I came to a screeching halt, rubber burning. I struggled to keep my car from spinning off the road. Gasping for air, I sat with my hands clenching the steering wheel so hard my knuckles turned white. The sun finally decided to set. The silence was almost deafening. Only my raspy breathing filled the car's interior. I slowly looked through the rearview mirror to try and catch a glimpse of this mangled corpse lying on the road. Straining my neck to try and see every possible angle, I couldn't make out anything lying on the road. I was too terrified to leave the safety of my car and continue my search on foot. Think, damn it, think. Maybe I could try and call the police, but I was in the middle of nowhere. No way I could get a signal. Maybe I could, uh... Why didn't you slow down? Growled the backseat. Seeing Red, The First Day of School, by Reddit user Zenry Hal. <laughs> Everyone loves the first day of school, right? New year, new classes, new friends. It's a day full of potential and hope. Before all the depressions of reality show up to ruin all the fun. Now, you see... I like the first day of school for a different reason. I have a sort of power. When I look at people, I could sense a sort of aura around them. A colored outline based on how long that person has to live. Now, mostly everyone I meet around my age is surrounded by a solid green hue. Uh, which means they have plenty of time left. A fair amount, though, of them have a yellow-orangish tinge to their auras, which tends to mean a car crash or some tragedy. Anything that takes people before their time, as they say. Now, <laughs> now here's a real fun. is when the auras venture into the red end of the spectrum. Now, every now and then, I'll see someone who who is basically a walking stoplight. Those are the ones who get murdered or kill themselves. <laughs> it's such a rush to see them and know their time is numbered. Now, with that in mind, I always get to class very early so I can scout out my classmates' fate. The first kid who walked in was basically a radiating red. <laughs> I chuckled to myself. Too damn bad, bro. But as people kept walking in, they all had the same intense glow. What? I finally caught a glimpse of my rose-tinted reflection in the window. But I was too stunned to move. That's when our professor stepped in and locked the door. His aura... A sickening shade of green.
Betsy the Doll by the Dalek Emperor. Like most people these days, I had a fucked up childhood. But I mean, who doesn't, right? My father took off before I was born and my mother was left to care for me on her own, a skill she was sorely lacking. My mother slipped right back into the drug-addled party lifestyle she enjoyed before I was born and had soon turned our two-bedroom apartment into an opium den. For the first five years of my life, I walked around in a confused, terrifying mist. The smoky air would flood down the hallway from my living room and slip under my bedroom door. It always seemed to linger for days. I know that my mother wasn't a bad person, just a victim of her addictions. When she did have any spare money, she would put food in the house or buy me clothes from Goodwill. The only pieces of furniture I had in my bedroom was a mattress set and a little blue and white toy chest. Not that I had a lot of toys to put in it, of course. Just the three that I got in for birthdays. One was an art kit. One was a red wagon. And the last, my pride and joy. It was a doll named Betsy. Betsy was my best friend. We would have imaginary tea parties together, sleep together, and even take baths together. Sometimes I remember her voice. When I thought back on my conversations with the doll in adulthood, I realized that I was likely suffering from delusions. Thanks to the always present buds of smoke that claim to the dingy hallways and drafty bedrooms of our small apartment. Still, I remember the sound of her voice, a pleasant, tingly lilt that was almost always coupled by a giggle. Well, many giggles. I also remember the thing that she said to me and the thing she always wanted me to do. She asked me to steal usual food or pens and pencils. She wanted me to bring her forks and knives and hit the bad man who slept on our couch. It was always something, and I would always get in trouble, but she wouldn't. When I told my mother who had put me up to these games, she would scoff and shake her head, and she never believed me. Adults never do. Around my sixth birthday, I asked my mother for a birthday party. I wanted to invite the mean girls from school and serve them cake and ice cream so that way they can like me. I remember standing in the kitchen that day with such hopes having just asked the most important question of my entire life. The glass bottle of Coca-Cola I held was shaking in my nervous hands. I waited with batted breath as my mother continued putting groceries away, almost as if she hadn't heard me, but I know she had. Finally, just as I had failed a second time to muster the courage to repeat my question, she turned around and gave me a flip-hand shake of her hand. A birthday party? Laura, that's ridiculous. I can't afford to feed 15 children that aren't even mine. Hell, I can barely afford to feed you. You eat like an elephant, and especially for a girl your size. Or, I'm sorry, Betsy does. There's barely anything left for me to eat around here, much less a classroom of other people's brats. My face fell as she shook her head and stumbled off into the living room. I heard the music go up and more people walked into the door. Some left, some stayed. I never knew them either way. It simply wasn't fair. My mother threw parties all the time, but what about me? I was a kid. All my friends had birthday parties and all the mean girls at school would know that I was too poor to have one and they would tease me even more. I felt tears start to well the corners of my eyes and I choked back into a sob while I ran to my room and slapped the door behind me. Betsy was lying in the bed and smiling. She was always smiling. Usually it made me feel better, but today it just made me angry. She just kept staring at me, smiling. She was going to tell me to do something bad again. This was why mother wouldn't throw me my birthday party. It was because of all the trouble I got down to because of her. This was her fault. Betsy didn't have to go to school, and Betsy never got in trouble like I did. And in my young mind, I truly believe that it was the doll, not my mother, who was to blame for everything. 
I snapped then. I screamed in rage and I threw the bottle as hard as I could at my bed. It hit Betsy on her forehead and she fell on the floor. Good. I picked up the bottle and I hit her again and again. I thought I heard her laugh and I hit her harder. When my rage was spent, I dragged Betsy into my toy chest and threw her in. I slammed it shut and kicked the chest against the wall. I never wanted to see Betsy again. Ever. I never owned another doll after Betsy. About a week later, the police came and two nice ladies took me to live in a new home, in a new state, with food and toys. And the best of all, no drugs. The trunk went into storage and the wagon disappeared. I never saw my mother again. As I got older, the foster parents admitted that she was in jail doing 25 years. That was fine with me. I felt nothing for her anyway. I still had nightmares because of my life with that woman, but then slowly, I began to heal. I focused on doing well in school and I ignored my mother's letters from prison. She reached out to me several times in my 20s as well, but I always declined her calls. That is, until this morning. I'm 30 now with my own children and a loving, honest husband. I have a beautiful house, two dogs, and a career as a social worker trying to make a difference for the kids who had it bad just like I did. I'm happy, I'm steady, and I'm content. So when I got a voicemail from my mother informing me that she had been paroled and that she wished to speak, I decided to let her say her piece. Since the kids were home from school, I went out onto our shed in the backyard to return my mother's call. The shed was a children's domain and they used to play in the summer. I sat on my old toy chest, which was currently being used as a tea party table. Hello? Laura? Hello, mother. How are you? Oh, Laura, thank you for speaking to me. I know you have your own life now and family. I would love to meet them someday. I just wanted to tell you how sorry I am for everything. Mother, you are not meeting my kids ever. And since you called me, I'm going to do what I've always wanted to say for years. The opium, the heroin, they destroyed you. And the worst of it is that you almost took me down with you. I was five. That was no home for a child. Honestly, I'm surprised it took you so long to get caught. L Laura, I know how it seems, but honestly, it's nothing. Look. It hardly matters and I do understand why you would feel that way, why you would hate me and not want me to meet your little ones. I learned a lot about forgiveness while I was away and just, oh, Laura, I'm, I'm, I'm just so sorry about Betsy. Betsy? I paused, confused. Why would you care about her? I know, Laura, believe me, I do. It was all my fault. The drugs, the partying. And Betsy, oh God, if I only paid attention, if I only known, she's gone and it's because of me. As my mother began to cry, I tapped my fingers on the toy box impatiently. <laughs> the drugs had clearly fried her brain. Mother, I sighed. Why are you talking about Betsy? Why do you even care? I know where Betsy is, right underneath me. What are you talking about, Laura? Oh God, where is she? I shifted uncomfortably. Well, Betsy's in the trunk where she's always been. There was a beat of stunning silence. What do you mean your sister's in the trunk? Sister, what the hell are you talking about? Back on drugs so soon? <laughs> That's a record even for you. Betsy's a goddamn doll. I locked her in my toy box a few days before you got arrested in possession. Laura, oh God, no, no. Laura, what have you done? I wasn't arrested because of the drugs, Laura. I was arrested because of Betsy's disappearance. You always called her your little doll, but thought that you knew. Oh, God. I thought you knew, Laura. No. What have you done to my baby? My mind had gone blank, and with no emotion, I set the phone down next to me, and I stood up. I could hear the muffled sound of my mother's anguished cries and feel the dark clutch of possibility in my own chest. 
Memories were stirring in the back of my mind, threatening the flood forward until my consciousness. It pushed against a door in my mind. It's been locked so tightly for so long that I have forgotten that it was even there. Was this possible? Could the drama and the opium have really led me to believe that the small child was actually a doll? Begging for food and utensils to eat with? Asking me to protect her from the bad man? No. I slowly turned around and brought my eyes down to the makeshift tea party table. Surely it was too small. You couldn't fit a person in there. You couldn't. But then, what about a very small, starving child? What about her? Would she fit? Would an investigator even bother looking for a person in this chest? I knew I wouldn't. It was just too small. And I was sure we had opened the toy box at some point over the years. Hadn't we? Or had something swimming in the dark, recesses in the memories always stopped me from doing it. I couldn't remember ever seeing it open. I knelt down to the ground and opened the clasp. It would be better not to look. For all that I have overcome, this new life that I have earned for myself, it could all be undone by opening this toy box. I shouldn't open it. I should throw it in a landfill and forget it ever existed. I should not look inside. I opened the chest. I never had a doll. My mother could never afford to buy me one. I never had a wagon either, for that matter. But I did have a toy box. A pretty blue and white toy box. And when I was five, I beat my little sister to death and put her in it. Warrior of God by Reddit user KMA Puck. If God exists, why is there so much evil in the world? <laughs> you see, it's a common question, but it's misplaced. You see, all things must have balance, light and dark good and evil, sound and silence. Without one, the other cannot exist. So if that's true, then God does nothing to fight evil? Huh. That might be your follow-up question. Of course he fights evil, relentlessly. I am D'Artagnan, one of his most holy and righteous angels. I roam the earth, disposing of evil wherever I find it. I kill the monsters you don't ever want to know about. I crush them completely so you can sleep at night. You humans have no idea how many of you live because of the work I do. But what about Stalin, Hitler, Ted Bundy, Jack the Ripper? Well, those are the minor ones I had to let live. For balance, you see. The ones I destroy are too horrible and vile to survive. <laughs> What's funny is while I would wager you have never heard of the name D'Artagnan in any religious text, I bet you have heard of me. Americans, for example, they have their own name for me. Sudden Infant Death Syndrome.
How to Summon the Butter Street Hitchhiker Written by Wright Chris Wright With all stories here on Reddit No Sleep, the disclaimer, do not try this at home, is a given. That being said, I could probably prevent copycats by changing some of the details so that even if you manage to find the right pickup spot, you wouldn't be able to summon the hitchhiker. But hey, if you're adventurous, go for it. If you follow the rules, it's perfectly safe, but the knowledge you gain may not be. There's an urban legend in my hometown about a hitchhiker on Butter Street that will appear if you follow a series of instructions. Once summoned, you drive into his destination, and if you play the game right, he will answer an unknowable question for you. If you play it wrong, well, <laughs> just don't play it wrong. There's an old gravel pit at the end of Butter Street. The water there is the deepest blue. It's almost like staring into the ocean. That's how deep it is. More than one car over the years has been dredged up from the depths there. Officially, these drivers all fell asleep at the wheel. But unofficially, the death from the cars careening off the road into the gravel pit during the wee hours of the night only add more veracity to the urban legend. They were the poor souls who broke the hitchhiker's rules. So far no one has pinpointed the origin of the legend. I've reached out to the local historical society and searched through the newspaper archives in the local library and haven't found any mentions of the hitchhiker. It's a modern piece of folklore passed around coffee shops and diners in the early morning hours until it eventually made its way to high school cafeterias. It wasn't until someone posted about the hitchhiker on a local Facebook group that people began sharing their experiences and the rules of how to summon him. But as more people shared their experiences, the details about the hitchhiker varied from person to person. His clothes have switched over the years, growing more modern. His speech doesn't reflect any particular time period either. No mannerisms of 23 skidoo phrases to help date him. Sometimes he's in his late teens, sometimes he's much older. Even with these differences, everyone who claimed to have summoned the hitchhiker swears that he was real. The only common thread in all these stories of the hitchhiker is that he always is wet when he enters a car followed by what were always his first words to the driver. It's a bad night for rain. To which you reply, well, is there ever a good night? He laughs, and that's when you know you're playing the game. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. I should go back to how I got him in the car. The game starts by turning your car on exactly at midnight. Where doesn't matter. Only when. And once the car is on, you can't get out. Nor can you let anyone else in. Just you, in your car, at midnight. What comes next is a lot of waiting. Because you have to be at the pickup point at Butter Street at exactly 3 a.m. That's right. Three hours in the car. Those are the rules. With three hours to kill... A lot of people show up early and just cruise the road so they can pick up the spot at exactly 3 p.m. As the urban legend has grown in popularity, the local police will pull you over if you see the car circle back down Butter Street more than once. The local cops all know the rules. So they pull you over, they'll have to turn off your car and get out of the vehicle, thus ending the game. On the night, I decided to summon him. I filled up my car at the gas station at 11.45 p.m., then went in and took advantage of the facilities to ensure that I wouldn't need to make any pit stops before 3 a.m. Then I waited in the parking lot until I was exactly midnight and started up my car. I should add that it doesn't matter what type of car you drive, but a four-door is preferred over a two-door or a pickup. You don't want to look directly at the hitchhiker not until the end of the trip. That's much easier to do if he's sitting in the back seat versus sitting beside you. 
I drove up in a big loop around the county until it was time to head to the pickup, avoiding any of the known police traps to keep from having to try again another night. I kept my maps program running on my phone so I knew exactly what time I had to make it by my way to Butter Street. I can't imagine how difficult it was to be an urban legend hunter before real-time GPS maps. Side note, you can play with the radio on or off. It has no impact on the hitchhiker. Radio on is preferred if you choose not to engage him. He can get quite loud and belligerent if you won't talk to him. I pulled up to the pickup spot, stopped the car, and then followed the summoning instructions. The rules posted online had small variations, but attempts that contained the following actions had the highest rate of success. Number one, leave the car on and in drive, but engage the emergency brake. Number two, turn off everything but the car, lights, air conditioning, radio, and your phone. Three, unlock the car doors three times. Four, roll down all the windows. Five, press the brake pedal three times. Six, turn the headlights back on. And lastly, seven, wait three minutes. If he's not there by 3.03 a.m., then you did something wrong. With the lights off, I noticed a fog rolling in. Whether it was part of the ritual or not, I don't know. But it added a creepy aesthetic to waiting on a dark road at 3 a.m. for a ghostly hitchhiker. Other than the idling of my Subaru, the road was still and quiet. I even swallowed my breathing so I could listen for footsteps, giggling teenagers or other cars, but there was nothing. I never even heard the car door open. I only heard it shut. It's a bad night for rain, a voice said from the back seat. I felt every hair on my body stand up as a chill ran up the back of my neck. Over my southern breathing, I could hear the steady drip of water from his pant leg hitting his shoe. I didn't turn around, but I stole a peek in the rearview mirror. He wasn't a big guy, maybe my height. He was dressed in a white Dr. Dre, the chronic t-shirt, a red windbreaker, and what looked like dark denim jeans. The rule said that the mirror was fine as long as you didn't turn the lights on in the car, but never look directly on his face. Not until he gets out of the car and ready to answer the question. I gathered up the courage to reply back, but the words stuck in my throat. I cleared <clears throat> and tried again. Uh, is there ever a good night? I held my breath, waiting. Then after what felt like ages, I saw his hand slap against his wet knee and he laughed. I let out the breath I was holding as I disengaged the parking brake. Hold up. Put your wipers on, champ. With all that rain, you won't see the road. This was scripted. Reply. That's part of the game. Uh, right. Sorry. Also, a scripted response. Despite his insistence on the rain, it was bone dry outside. Per the rules, I turned on my windshield wipers, setting them on their fastest setting. He settled back against the seat, laying his arm across the back window. I pulled back into the road just as the clock hit 3.03. I saw looks in the rear mirror as often as I felt comfortable while still keeping the car on the road. Luckily, this part of Butter Street was pretty straight and not a lot of traffic. From his voice and the hand tapping against the wet knee in the back seat, I could tell he was a black man, maybe mid-twenties and dressed like he came straight from 1996. Nothing like any of the descriptions I read on Facebook post about the hitchhiker. Where are you headed? I asked. This was a scripted part of the game. I'm headed to see my girl. I worked the late night shift tonight. Thought I'd pop and surprise her. His response to this question was always different. That coupled with the fact that the appearance of the hitchhiker seemed to shift lead many to believe that it was not the same spirit every single time. I pulled up at the stop sign at the end of Butter Street. Yeah, you want to make a right here. Followed his orders, other than following them, the destination and directions were irrelevant. The ride goes until 3.33am when he tells you to pull over. 
So what's your story, man? A scripted prompt. But how you reply was completely up to you. Some have ignored talking to him altogether, which apparently is not recommended. Some have shared a little out of politeness. Others have talked right up until the drop of time, filling the air with their own words. The more you talk to him, the more he talks back. It doesn't impact the game, it just makes the journey a little bit more interesting. Even though I'm driving a ghost, his voice is disarming, making him easy to talk to. Uh, I have a day job that pays the bills, just boring office stuff, but in my spare time I like to explore urban legends and haunted places. Go out looking for proof of life after death. Oh, for real? Damn, that's spooky as hell. Unscripted reply. He leaned forward, putting his elbows on his knees. In the rearview mirror, I could see the sleeves of his windbreaker were shredded. What's the scariest thing you've seen? Uh, take it right up here. Unscripted. I wanted to say, besides this? But I held my tongue. All indications from everyone who have played the Hitchhiker's game say that he was unaware of his situation. He's just a passenger getting a ride to his destination. Attempts to get him to recognize his ghostly predicament do not go well. So, I do not advise bringing it to his attention. I took the next ride as I continued my story. About two years ago, I was on an overnight ghost hunt at the Ohio State Reformatory an old prison up in Mansfield where they filmed Shawshank Redemption. I figured it was from the 90s. He might remember the movie. So there's a group of six of us on the tour and we're over in the administration wing and I felt this hand press onto my back like it was guiding me forward. Oh hell no, my ass would have been gone up there. I ain't even playing. Unscripted response. It's about this time that I realized that all the streetlights were off. Not just the lights on the streets. Everything was dark. Granted, it was in the middle of the night, but we drove past a Taco Bell that was open 20 minutes ago when I passed by on the way to Butter Street. Now, it's completely dark. Not a single car in the parking lot. That's the second thing I noticed. No cars. We've driven 15 minutes without passing a single car. Not only were there no cars on the road, there weren't any cars in the driveways or on parking lots. As we rolled by the Ford dealership, the entire lot was empty. It's like we stepped completely out of reality into a different one. So, what did you do? Unscripted. Got his interest, apparently. I can tell you the story. I turn and look, and no one's behind me. But I can smell rose-scented perfume. Apparently one of the ghosts there is the wife of the warden. She was killed when the warden's gun went off by accident. It fell out of the closet, went off, shot her in the lung. That's crazy, man. But I can feel why she might be hanging around still. You know what I'm saying? Like she's got something to finish. Some unfinished business and shit. Because her life was cut short like that. We rolled in silence for a bit. I don't know for how long. I tried looking back in the mirror, but he just kind of hung in the shadows. Then I felt a cold breath against my neck, sending shivers up my spine. Could you imagine what that's like, he said? Unscripted. Well, what do you mean? I replied, also unscripted. Having your life cut short like that due to the careless act of another human being? It's pretty fucked up. Unscripted. My heart thudded against my chest. Did I mess up? Did I not follow the rules? Did he... <laughs> I'm just playing, man. You need to relax. I felt his hands gripping my shoulders, giving them a little rub. They were as cold as ice. He patted my shoulder and sat back. I felt a trickle of water go down my back from the cold, wet spots on my shoulder where he grabbed me. All this right coming up. He leaned forward, pointing down the road. His skin was ashy and his thumbnail was split to the nail bed. The smell of wet loom wafted into the front of the cabin. I made the turn. 
I peed at the clock on the dashboard and saw that it was 3.29. Only four minutes to go. You got any family? Scripted. I felt my heart leave my throat and drop back into my chest. We were back on the script. I used to. Just me now. That's tough, I know. Before my girl, I was all alone. I don't know what I'd do if I didn't have her. Life would just be empty. Unscripted. A quiet stillness followed, like he was hit by a pang of remorse. For a moment, it was quiet. I wasn't sure if he was still back there, but I felt his cold hand clap me on my shoulder. Don't worry, man. You seem like an okay dude. Going out of your way to help a young man like myself on a rainy night like this. I'm sure you'll find someone. It just takes time. Unscripted. We rode in silence as I stole glances down the clock on the dash. As soon as the time flipped to 3.33 a.m., I heard his weight shift as he leaned forward. Oh, this is me up here. He pointed to a spot down the road. There was nothing there. No house, no driveway, not even a place to pull off. I pulled the car to the shoulder and eased to a stop. Just when I was picking him up, I turned off the lights, radio, and engaged the parking brake, leaving the car in drive. You don't have to bother with the locking and unlocking three times or the business with the brake pedal. Just unlock. Also, this is very important, don't watch him get out. Don't look at him in the rearview mirror. Don't do anything but look down at your hands on the steering wheel. Keep them on the wheel, 10 and 2, and just wait. This time, I heard the car door open and slam shut. Thanks for the ride. Do you have a question for me? Yes. Scripted. It was still his voice, but unlike the previous conversation, it was completely devoid of personality or emotion. Once you completed the ride, you were allowed to ask him a question. It has to be something personal, but also unknowable. You can't ask for lottery numbers or things like that. People had supposedly asked about the location of lost heirlooms, the exact date and time of their death, the fate of long-lost relatives, all sorts of personal questions They'd have no other way of knowing. For the second time that night, the words failed to leave my throat. I took a deep breath and I swallowed. Is she at peace? I asked. Then without thinking, I added, does she blame me? My words were barely above a whisper, but I knew he heard me. After he asked, then and only then are you allowed to look directly at him. And so I did. I felt all the color drain from my face as I looked up. The hitchhiker had no face at all. Only two shiny black spots where his eyes should have been. He had no mouth, no nose, nothing else. Just two quarter-sized black pools of what looked like liquid ink where his eyes should be. And they reflected every star in the sky. The hitchhiker had no face at all. Only two shiny black spots where his eyes should have been. He had no mouth, no nose, nothing else. Just two quarter-sized black pools of what looked like liquid ink where his eyes should be, and they reflected every star in the sky. I couldn't look away from those eyes even though I very much wanted to. That's two questions, my friend. Unscripted. My heart jumped back into my throat. I broke the rules. I fucked up. I asked two questions. I was paralyzed, staring up into his face. I sat looking up at him for what felt like hours. I pulled back a little as his hands moved up to the sides of his face, just under his ears. I thought for a moment he might rip off his false face and reveal another, more terrifying one. But he didn't remove his face. Instead, pulled his hoodie over his head, returning his empty face to the shadows. But since you were kind enough to save me from walking all this way in the rain, I'll answer you. Unscripted. Before I could exhale or sigh of relief, he gripped the door frame, leaned down so I could stare directly onto his empty eyes. She's not at peace, and she does blame you. Even with the hood up, 
I could see every last star in the night sky in those inky black pools. I can't fully capture what I saw in them. It was like staring at vast nothingness. They held everything and nothing at the same time. His eyes, they were like staring into eternity. As he stood up from the window, I let out the breath I was holding. My hands shook as I pulled him off the steering wheel. Drive safe, scripted reply. The last thing he says before he leaves. He walked away behind the car. You can watch him walk in the rearview mirror, but don't turn around or try to get out and follow him. I watched until he disappeared into the darkness and waited until I could no longer hear his footsteps against the gravel. When I turned on my headlights, I realized that I was back on Butter Street, parked on the side of the road next to a drop-off for the gravel pit. This was always where he ended up after the hitchhiker leaves. All I had to do was release the parking brake and the car would roll towards the drop-off, gaining speed until it launched off the cliff onto the deep blue water waiting below. I don't know how long I sat there with my hand on the parking brake release, contemplating his answer to my question. But then, I saw them. Headlights. Car was coming up the road towards me. Cars were back. As were the streetlights and the house lights. I was back from whatever the hitchhiker took me. I locked eyes with the driver as they drove by, having one of those weird moments where time seems to slow down. It was enough to jolt me back to reality. I realized that the parking brake and aimed my car back on the road. I got home a little after 5 a.m. I tried to sleep, but was too worked up from my adventure, so I called in sick. I laid in bed all day thinking about the hitchhiker, his words, and all those cars that end up in the gravel pit on Butter Street. Maybe those cars aren't from people who played the game wrong. Maybe they all played it right, but couldn't handle the response to their question. It's been three days since I picked up the hitchhiker. I can still smell the wet loom in my car, and his muddy footprints in the floorboard of the back seat are still there. As I write this, I look up from my monitor and look at the photo of my Abigail, taking two weeks before she died. She was beautiful, smiling, and happy. She's not at peace, and she does blame you. It's my favorite photo of her. I think I'll take it with me when I take a drive later tonight. I'm going back to see the hitchhiker. I have a hunch, and I don't know if it's relevant, but I think it's important to share with anyone reading this that I'm wearing a gray Adidas hoodie and jeans. If somebody out there reading this picks up the hitchhiker later on and sees something similar and gets in the backseat, well, I guess we solve that part of the mystery. If you do pick up the hitchhiker, I hope you get the answer you're searching for. As I look outside, the skies are cloudy, but I hope the weather holds up for a drive later. It's a bad night for rain. Persuaded by Chris Stewart. It all started with a tanker accident. It was all over the news. Everyone thought it was just another oil spill. There were plenty of volunteers, plenty of people wanting to help the poor, defenseless animals. Plenty of victims. Within hours of the tanker accident, it started happening. The animals had gone crazy. They were scratching and biting the cleanup volunteers. They said that it was an adverse effect to whatever was in that tanker. 
Rescue workers were still trying to get the crew out of the ship. They could hear screaming inside, screams to open the doors. But that's when it all went to hell. As soon as they cut the door out. There was six minutes of broadcast before it went silent. Six minutes of screaming and agony. The ship crew attacked the rescue workers like rabid baboons, breaking bones and tearing flesh. The people on the shore weren't faring any better. Those that had been attacked by animals were now attacking everyone else. It was worse than any war zone report. It was sheer brutality. And yet, the broadcast still went on for six whole minutes. Six minutes and then blank faces. Nobody could explain what was happening. They tried to continue with regular news. The economy, the weather, a cute human interest story. But they couldn't make us unsee what we just saw. I tried to continue with my regular existence, but every time I switched on the news or walked by a newsstand, it was there. This big mystery. They had some explanations, some kind of infection, brain parasites, but it didn't matter. It wasn't an infection we were afraid of, it was them. Four days after the initial report, a state of emergency was raised. And yet, we'd all seen this before, every zombie movie ever. People didn't know who to trust. People were stockpiling food and weapons. Some tried to flee, but it seems every zombie movie was right. They didn't make it. Three days later, they arrived in my town. I expected moans, shuffling corpses, dismemberment, but that's where the movies lied. They just ran through the streets, screaming. I remember running to my front door as fast as I could, locking, barricading, doing anything to make sure it would stay shut, and then I headed for the window. I was on the second story and I could see the carnage. They were unstoppable. They were aware. A group of them made their way through a building across the street. They jumped straight through plate glass windows. Even the shards slicing through them made no difference. They just kept coming. My barricade wasn't going to hold. I rushed around my flat, grabbing supplies and jamming them into the most secure room of the flat. I went back for one last look across the street and I wish I hadn't. In a second story window, my face met one of theirs. They now knew where I was. I quickly dashed into the room and locked the door. I don't have any kind of panic room or a secure basement. So the safest place I could think of was my restroom. No windows, one door with a lock. I had filled my sink and bathtub full of water just so I could stay here for a while. So I sat there in the dark room with the distant screams in my ears. I began to feel like I may have overreacted. It had been two hours and there was no sign of them. It actually got quieter and I thought they had moved on. Maybe I could leave the room, get to the kitchen, grab more food just to wait it out. When a crash came from the front door followed by a couple more and before I knew it, they were inside. Rapid footsteps moving around the flat, a couple screams and then a bang on the wall beside me. They knew I was there and they knew I was scared. This was the zombie nightmare I had been expecting from the start. I had nowhere to run. There was only so much time before they would break in. I sat with my back to the door, hoping my extra weight would make it hard for them to get in. And then, it got worse. 
Don't you open the door. No screams. No moans. Just a voice. And then more of them. Open it now! It's not so bad! We've come for you! The whispery voices became a cacophony of noise trying to persuade me, to break me, to fool me. I had heard that the moaning of zombies would drive people insane, but this was worse. This was a siren call. I sat in the darkness and hoped and prayed that they get bored, but they don't, and they didn't leave. I managed to use the mirror to peek under the door, only to be greeted by horrible, unblinking eyes, blood-smeared faces, and more horrible whispers. That was two days ago. I don't know what to do anymore. Maybe it won't be so bad. They got the definition wrong by Reddit user Yui. It's been said that the definition of insanity is, well, doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting different results. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand the sentiment behind the saying, but it's wrong. And this is why. Uh, I entered the building on the bet. I was strapped for cash and didn't buy into the old legends of the hotel to begin with. So 50 bucks was more than enough to get me to do it. Easy, simple. Just reach the top floor, the 45th floor to be exact, shine my flashlight from a window, and I'm good. 50 bucks. Now, the hotel was old and broken, including the elevator. So, that meant hiking up the stairs. So up the stairs I went. As I reached each platform, I noted the old brass plaques displaying the floor numbers. 15, 16, 17, 18. I felt a little tired as I crept higher but so far, no ghosts, no cannibals, no demons. Piece of cake. I can't tell you how happy I was as I entered the last stretch of numbers. I joyfully counted them out loud at each platform. 40, 41, 42, 43. 44, 44, 44, I, I stopped and looked back down the stairs, I must have miscounted, so I continued up, 44, one more flight, 44, and then down 10 flights, 44, 15 flights, 44, and so it's been for as long as I can remember, <laughs> so really, insanity isn't doing something repeatedly and expecting different results, no, 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 that's not, it's knowing that the results will never ever change that each door leads to the same staircase to the same number it's realizing you no longer fall asleep 
It's not knowing whether you've been running for days or weeks or years. It's when the sobbing slowly turns into laughter. Ha 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 ha!